We're going to be completing our study through the letter of 1 Peter today. And in this final chapter, chapter 5 of Peter's letter, Peter addresses a number of different topics in rapid succession before closing the letter. This last chapter reminds me a little of the checkout line at the grocery store. You know how they line up in the aisles all these items that you may have forgotten to pick up as you were going through the store proper. Sometimes it even seems like there's more things in that little aisle than there was in the whole rest of the store. Well, Peter includes this last chapter, some last-minute items for us to take with us before he says goodbye. And it's kind of like the checkout line in that it might feel like we're talking about more things in this one chapter today than we've talked about in the whole study through the letter of 1 Peter. So, Let's flip over to 1 Peter 5 and begin in verse 1. In these first four verses of this chapter, Peter gives instructions to the leaders in the churches. He says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He says, To the elders among us, over the centuries, governmental structures have developed within churches with various titles and roles being defined. There are pastors and deacons and elders and popes and bishops and cardinals and patriarchs and priests, and you get the idea. We don't find all that stuff in the New Testament itself. Some of these systems and titles and roles are actually quite elaborate. But here in the New Testament, the term elder as being used here is often used in the New Testament, to simply refer to those who are in a position of leadership in the church. That's how this word is being used by Peter here. He is simply addressing the people in the churches who are the leaders without paying attention to titles. One of the first things that we notice is how Peter refers to himself here as a fellow elder. He identifies himself with these other leaders, elders, and by doing so, he's saying to them, in effect, that he knows and understands the struggles and the temptations that a leader faces. He knows the pitfalls. He knows the joys and the discouragements. He knows the responsibilities. These are all things that he himself faces too. He identifies himself as one who needs to take to heart these things that he's going to be saying to these leaders. So he includes himself in it, what he's talking to them about. He then says here that he says, a witness of Christ's suffering. So this next thing is Peter establishes his credibility as a person who witnessed firsthand the suffering of Jesus. Peter was there. He was one of the original 12 disciples who lived with and learned from Jesus. He saw with his own eyes the suffering of Jesus, the false accusations, the rejection, the abandonment, the ridicule, the beatings, the torturing, the killing of Jesus. And finally, we note Peter's confident belief that he will, along with all of the other followers of Jesus, share in the glory of Jesus to be revealed. And 
This is an important element of the Christian's hope that Peter repeats again and again throughout this letter. The glory that we will share in counterbalances any sufferings that we face in this life. We need to keep this hope, this future, this glory in mind as we go through this life. So he begins in verse 2 saying, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. He appeals to the leaders to first be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. So in a similar way that a shepherd has responsibility for the well-being for the flock of sheep entrusted to them, a church leader has responsibility for the well-being of the people that God has entrusted them with. Peter says it's God's flock. These are God's sheep, God's people. The shepherd does not own the sheep. The shepherd is given responsibility for caring for the sheep. But these are the master's sheep. And keeping that in mind helps us to avoid some of the pitfalls and problems that Peter addresses in this passage here. So Peter, he lays out how the shepherding of God's flock is to be done, what kind of attitude it should be done with, what kind of approach should be used in doing it. And he does this in three things that he talks about. The first is, he says, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Well, what does that mean? There's a kind of compelling or a, a sense of, I must do this that comes with the call that God places on a person's life to serve his church. Peter is not talking about that. He's talking about the attitude with which we carry out the work. We should lead with a willing heart. We should not do our service to God and his people begrudgingly. We should not do it like it's just a job that we're doing for a paycheck. When leading the Lord's people is done with a bad attitude, it misrepresents the Lord to His people. It can give the Lord's people the impression that they're a bother to the Lord. And you are never a bother to the Lord. He loves you. He cares about you. He's eager to interact with you. He wants you to see Him as your protector, your provider, your loving Father. It can give the Lord's people the impression that the Lord is a hard taskmaster, that he's mean and he's unfair to those who serve him and his people. And that's not true either. The Lord is generous and he's kind, he's patient, he's good. He's wonderful to serve, isn't he? So the second thing that Peter says to the leaders of the church, he says, not pursuing dishonest gain, not greedy for personal material gain, but eager to serve. So the leader's motive is to be the good of the people rather than personal enrichment. If we, all, if we allow material gain to be our motive, we will show favoritism to those who are wealthy or have positions of power and influence. The Lord does not show favoritism. And we must not show favoritism either. 
If we allow material gain to be our motive, we'll be tempted to manipulate people. God doesn't manipulate people. We must not manipulate people. That is not the way the Lord does His business. He's not a manipulator. He says we're to be eager to serve, ready and willing. We're to be responsive to the needs of God's people without concern for personal gain. Our primary concern should be for the well-being of God's people, not what benefit might be in it for ourselves. Now, although material gain is mainly in mind here with what Peter's talking about, it can also apply to other forms of personal enrichment. A leader should not be seeking to build their ego, for example, or improve their self-esteem, or satisfy their need for affirmation, and so forth, from the people that they're leading. See, emotionally needy and greedy leaders are trouble. So the third thing Peter says here to the leaders, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not lording it over people. Someone has made the observation that cattle are driven, but sheep are led. We're sheep, we're not cattle. We don't want to lead by threatening people or using fear and intimidation. That's not an effective way to ever lead anyone under any situation. But more importantly, it misrepresents the Lord. Again, our Lord doesn't lead that way. He leads by example. He came to serve, not be served, remember? He humbled Himself, making Himself as nothing for our sakes. He gave His life for us. We're to lead by example too, rather than by force, rather than by manipulation, rather than by coercion. An example is always more powerful, isn't it? And meaningful than a command. Show me is always better than tell me. Demonstration is more effective than lecture. The famous UCLA Basketball coach John Wooden said, the most powerful leadership tool you have is your own personal example. Paul summed up this same idea this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul, he sought to follow the example of Jesus, making his own life then an example that others could follow. We want to live a life that can be imitated by imitating Jesus. It is a tremendous challenge, though, to live a life that can be followed by others, isn't it? I mean, whenever you say, ooh, I'm in trouble. There are moments in my life that could be considered followable. But there are lots of other moments in my life that I definitely don't want to be used as an example for others to follow. And I think if you have an ounce of honesty, you probably feel the same way about your life. It's helpful for us to remember that how we live through our failures 
can be a benefit to others as much or more than how we live through our successes. What do we do when we fail? Are we humble? Do we admit our wrong? Do we seek to make things right? Something the Apostle Paul wrote about himself can be an encouragement for us about this too. In 1 Peter, I mean, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.12, he wrote this. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing this. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, and you may remember that he was persecuting the church and dragging Christians off to prison and having them killed. He was a violent man. He was a persecutor. He did awful things. He says, even though I did all of this awful stuff. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. My life is not an example of the amazingness of human achievement. My life is an example of the Lord's patience and mercy and grace and love. That's something I can do. It's something that we can all do. Verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So when the chief shepherd, who is Jesus, comes back, he will reward those who have served well in his name. And the Lord is very generous with his rewards. Consider this. Even those who have shown kindness by giving a cup of water in his name will be rewarded. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42? He said, And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Our God is kind and generous. Peter now turns his attention from leaders in the church to young people in the church. In verse 5, It says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Who are the younger that Peter's referring to here? Well, it's most likely people who would be considered the younger men and women in the church. The actual ages, the age range, it would have been determined by the time and culture that he was writing. But I think it's most beneficial for us, all of us, to not try to restrict this audience here to a particular age range. Instead, see younger as a term to refer to all of us because on some level there is always someone who could be considered our elder, our leader, who deserves our respect. Peter gives the younger people in the church essentially the same general instructions that he 
has given already in this letter to the believers in other life situations and settings back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He says, be submissive and respectful. We are told to be submissive and respectful toward our elders, toward our leaders. Second part of verse 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So Peter, he, he now says to the entire church, all of us, young and old, men and women, leaders, moms, dads, slaves, masters, everyone that he's been talking to throughout this letter, says be humble toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And I love that, that picture that his words create. It's the garment that we are to always be wearing as we interact with each other is humility. That's the one garment we're to always have on when we're interacting with each other is humility. What does that mean? Well, here's how Paul explained it in his letter over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, when he said this. He said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's the garment of humility that we're to be wearing. There's no place in the body of Christ for self-centeredness. In fact, God is against the proud, it says here, the the arrogant, the selfish, the self-centered, and he extends favor to the humble. So verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. You might remember that The churches that Peter's writing to here, they were suffering persecution and difficulties in their life. And he returns to that overarching issue that they're facing. And we all face that on some level. So he's still speaking to the whole church. And he encourages us to entrust ourselves to God, putting ourselves in his mighty hands and humbly waiting for him to lift us up in his time. Oh, there was the difficult word, waiting. Waiting can be really hard. And there's no shortcut to it. Peter gives us counsel in verse 7 for how to live through the waiting. It says, cast all your anxiety on him, the Lord, because he cares for you. That word translated anxiety, it refers to whatever is worrying us, concerning us, has us upset, whatever we're fretting over, feeling anxious about, feeling uncertain and unsettled about, whatever has our mind grinding away on, going round and round, and we can't stop it. All that stuff. What are we supposed to do with these crazy-making thoughts of anxiety? He says, Cast them on the Lord. That word cast means to throw it on the Lord, to give Him the responsibility for it. Which of these crazy-making thoughts of anxiety are we to cast on the Lord? 
All of them. Cast all your anxiety on him, it says. All of it. Why? Because he cares for us. He loves us. He has compassion on us. We are his beloved children. He has, a, he has not forgotten us. He will come to our rescue. He always will. In verse 10, a little bit further down into this chapter, we're given the promise. After we have suffered a little while, the Lord will himself restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Know when you're waiting that he's coming. He is always coming. Verse 8. He now moves to the next item in the grocery aisle, so to speak. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In the preface of his famous book, The Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis wrote this about the devil. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. And so it's true, isn't it? There are two errors that we can make about the devil. We can either ignore him and his influence completely, or we see him behind every problem in life. And both of those are extreme positions. There are things that take place in this world and in our lives that are near impossible to explain any other way than to recognize the spiritual forces of evil that are purposely working to disrupt and to destroy us. At the same time, to attribute everything to the devil is to fall, is to fail to take responsibility for our own personal sin and the sins of the human race. We can't simply use the excuse, the devil made me do it for everything. I hope that we all have enough honesty, uh, common sense, and self-awareness to know better than that. I mean, left to myself, I can make a mess of my life without any help from the devil. <laughs> Peter has had some personal experience with the devil. He watched Jesus on many occasions during his ministry confront demons as he freed people from possession. He was used as a tool of the devil, you might remember, trying to talk Jesus out of going through with his crucifixion. It must have hurt when Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. Peter fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane on that dreadful night when Jesus would be arrested, failing to pray and be a supporting friend to Jesus. I wonder who it was that slipped him the sleeping pill. He let the devil frighten him and intimidate him out of admitting that he knew Jesus during Jesus' trial. Peter speaks from personal experience of the devil 
giving him troubles. What advice does Peter give us for dealing with the devil and demons? First, recognize the intent of this foe. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not a joke. He's not to be played with. He needs to be taken seriously. He wants to destroy us. Peter says, be alert, be on your guard, know and respect your personal weaknesses, keep yourself out of harm's way, don't put yourself in foolish situations. He says, be of sober mind, maintain a clear head, be self-controlled, be disciplined in your thinking and in your living. Resist him. What is it? mean to resist the devil. It means to oppose him, push back against him, don't give in to him, fight the temptation. That's what it means. Stand firm in the faith, he says. Cling to the things that you know are true. Know what you believe and hang on to it. Verse 9, remember that you're not alone or unique in your sufferings. A classic tactic of the devil is to get us to think that we are all alone and unique in what we are going through and what we have done. We start piling on the guilt and the loser talk. Fear and insecurity starts to fill our heart. No one else struggles with this the way I do. I am the biggest, most pathetic sinner, loser in the world because I keep falling to this same sin over and over. I've got no right to go to the Lord after this time. How can I face Him this time? There must be something really wrong with me. We're not unique and alone. It's important to remember that in this regard. Jesus knows us. He loves us. And he's died for your sin. And he's not given up on you, ever. He's not giving up on you. Let us put on the full armor of God as we're told in Ephesians 6. It's been given to us to stand firm against the assaults of the devil. And there's a ton of stuff that we could spend weeks talking about the armor of God, but I would like to at least read this passage to us this morning. Ephesians 6.10 it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Remember those things that are true. 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And where does our breastplate of righteousness come from? Jesus is our righteousness. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? It's Jesus. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Our faith is in Jesus. See, it all gets back to Jesus, doesn't it? Again and again. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So in verse 10 of 1 Peter 5, it says, And the Lord of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So in these closing re remarks, Peter, he compares our suffering a little while with a life that is an eternal glory that we are headed to. Our suffering will last only a little while. Our whole life, our whole life here is a little while in comparison to eternity. Our final victory, it doesn't depend on us, but on Him. He will restore us, make us strong, firm and steadfast. To Him be the glory, because He will do it for us. It brings us back to the amazing promise that Peter opened this letter with in 1 Peter 1.3, where he said this, he said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded, protected, guarded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, it's like two bookends, isn't it? Bunk. It's a little while that we suffer, but He is faithful. He's going to make you get through it. He's going to bring you home. He's protecting you, guarding you. All of your inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. It can't be taken from you. He has it. He's keeping it for you. So the, the last verse is verse 12. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And uh, just, uh, just really quickly give you guys some stuff about this. Is, is it appears that Silas, 
served as Peter's scribe and courier for this letter, helping him prepare the letter and then delivering it to the churches. And this is the same Silas, the same Silas who we read about in the book of Acts, who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys. Same guy. And this Mark that's mentioned here, this is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark in your Bible. He is with Peter in Rome at the time he is writing this letter. She who is in Babylon, it refers to the church in Rome where Peter is at when he's writing this letter. He says, she's greeting you, the church there. The early Christians referred to the city of Rome as Babylon because it was the seat of evil in the world at the time. It says, greet one another with a kiss of love. This was a common expression of agape love among believers in the church in those days. There are some places uh, and settings where this is still practiced in our own day. And then he ends the letter with a blessing of peace. And uh, I couldn't help but, but think of the promise of peace that Jesus gave us in John 14, 27. When Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Let's bow our head in prayer. Father, we thank you that you preserved this letter all of these years for us to read and benefit from. Peter wrote this letter to churches in the first century, and now here in our own day, we are one of the churches that continues to benefit from this letter, and we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that these precious truths and promises that we have in this letter would be written on our heart to be remembered, and Lord, that you would change our life. Encourage us, strengthen us, remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.